Brother Sam for leading us in worship today. Uh, it's my joy, privilege to introduce, I feel like I've done this all weekend, uh, but to introduce our guest speaker, uh, Pastor Dave, who we're so close in here, it's like, it's like right in front of me, so uh, kind of awkward, but it's okay. Um, I think a lot of different ways that he could be introduced. Uh, he has so many different hats that he wears and so many different things that he does. Um, a lot of different, uh, yeah, a lot of different ways that we could introduce him. We could introduce him as a graduate of Wheaton College, uh, master's degree from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Uh, might describe him as a church planter, Church of the Beloved. Um, international speaker is how he has been described in some uh, YouTube videos that show him preaching. Um, a devoted, uh, devoted uh, brother. He's got three brothers, uh, both younger and older than him. Um, fine basketball player, the Asian Magic Johnson, <laughs> wannabe, <laughs> uh, diehard Chicago Bulls, Pittsburgh Steeler fan, um, a dear brother, good friend of Harvest, of myself. Um, but I think the, the one thing that he would want to continually be, t- be, be defined by over and over and over again is as uh, a beloved child of God whose heart has been conquered by the love of God, and he lives to make that love known uh, to many people, all people, especially those who have the hardest time believing and understanding that. So let's welcome Pastor Dave Choi. Come preach to us. Just here. I'm gonna stand right here. Is that all right? <laughs> What's up? Good morning, everybody. Did you guys all get enough sleep? I know a lot of you guys were at the uh, the revival. How many of you guys uh, are tired this morning? Amen. All right, all right. Amen. All the people in the back. All right. Well, let's uh, open up with a word of prayer then, and let's ask God to give us some energy and uh, some supernatural ability to pay attention to His Word, and let's ask God to really soften and quicken our hearts and. I know that there's time constraints, and I like to, to preach long, so I want to just jump right into the text. So let's just bow before Jesus, and let's really invite him to speak a fresh word into our hearts, knowing that his word brings life to our souls. You pray for the person also on your right and your left and just pray that Jesus would really speak to them as well. Father, I pray that uh, this morning as they uh, hear the word of God, that they would not just hear it as a theory or as a story from a long time ago. Supernaturally, God, you would invite them into this story because this story happens uh, and has happened all throughout history, Lord. How many times, Lord, have we been prodigals? How many times have we strayed from the presence of the Father? How many times have we disobeyed you and gone to a distant country? and squander your wealth and wild living, Lord. And how many times, Father, have you run to us, Lord, to restore us, God? And so, Jesus, I pray that today this would be the kind of sermon, Lord, that would allow every single person the space to experience afresh 
the unbelievable grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, that they would feel the lavishness of your love for them today. That they would be liberated by it, that they would be embraced by it, God, that they would be healed by it, Lord. Father, we pray that you would continue, Lord, just like we've been praying all weekend, Lord, that this would be the kind of place that would be known for the lavish grace of Jesus Christ and the welcome of God. I pray again, Lord, just like we did last night, that you would use this church, this community of faith, Lord, to bring many people to know Jesus and that that would be a prayer for them this year. God would use them to make their namesake true. They would be used by you to bring in a harvest of new believers into this community, right here in this room. We bless you, we thank you, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The word of God today comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 uh, through 24. And uh, for those of you who will be going to the retreat, we're going to finish out the next two messages on Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 uh, through 24. And again, as you're turning there, you remember I told you that Jesus was chilling with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, they were eating, they were having a good time, and these religious guys, these Pharisees came and stepped to him and said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus told three stories in response to this uh, criticism, uh, and his response was basically this, that you're absolutely right, I welcome sinners, I love to welcome sinners, and I love to eat with them. This last story is the most extended story that really reveals the heart of who God is for us through Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So we divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set out for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. All I want to do this morning is just, just basically verse by verse go through this story and, um, and just kind of um, show you what this text is talking about. But really all of it is pointing to the unbelievable, lavish grace of Jesus Christ. And I'm praying, and I know many others um, I'm sure are praying as well, that you would uh, really um, be gripped by this grace and compelled by this grace and identify with this grace. So I want you guys to picture this because I think really this story, I, I think if you're a, you know, if, if some of you guys come from maybe um, other backgrounds, I think, I think the Asian background um, is, is a perfect kind of um, perspective on this story because so many themes, uh, as Asian Americans, you'll understand that other people have to kind of, you'll have to describe it 
um, to them. So I just want to kind of explain some things because I know not everyone here is Asian, so I want to just explain things. But if you are an Asian American, I know that for, for me at least, there's so many themes in here that I'm just like, I understand this because we grew up with this, like these same values. So you can imagine there's a, there's a guy, a father, and he has two sons, okay? And right away, you know, in Asian culture, um, at least in the old days, it was all about having that son, to carry on that family name, to carry on the job and, 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 the, and the family business. And so the, the guy has two sons, and it's the younger one. Because you remember, again, in Asian culture, uh, who do they prize? The oldest son. And so it's the younger son. And again, in a Jewish culture that's very similar to Asian culture, uh, the, 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 the people in the audience are already like, ooh, the younger son. So the younger son says to his father, Father, um, basically give me my stuff because I want it now. Now, what, what scholars tell you is that in the Middle Eastern culture of the first century, if you say, I want my inheritance now, what you're basically saying is, Father, I want you to be dead. Because the time that they got their inheritance was after the father died. The younger son has the audacity to come to the father and to shame him and to publicly say to him, I wish you were dead. I want my stuff now. Now, just again, come to the 21st century, come to an Asian American family and ask yourself, would that be a pleasant moment in the family? When, when, when not the older son, but the younger son goes up to his dad, Korean culture, for those of you guys who don't speak Korean like I don't, um, it, the word is appa, right? Right? And so um, <laughs> imagine a Korean son who's younger going up to the dad and saying, appa, I want my stuff, jigum, which means now, right? <laughs> I want it now. Now, in that moment, if you're in that family, Let's say they did it in the church sanctuary or in the, you know, in the fellowship hall. Would that be a pleasant moment? No. No, that would not be a pleasant moment. The reason why is because they, just like us, live in a shame-honor culture. And everything is about honor. Everything is about honor. Matter of fact, um, how many of you guys have ever talked back to your parents in public in a demeaning or condescending tone? Anybody? Raise your hand. Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Danny, but he ain't Korean. All right, what, what, what else? What, anyone else? I mean, the reason why is there, there were actually a few Koreans who did that, but they're no longer with us, okay? Because, I mean, really, like, I, I mean, there, there's one thing. Let me, let me tell you something. If you're in junior high and high school, never talk back to your Asian dad in public. Do it in private. Get punished in private. You know what I'm saying? Just, just don't do it in public because... Our culture is built on shame and honor. And what you have to understand is what this son, this younger son does is he absolutely shames his father. And everybody is about to hear about this in the village. Not only that, but he says, I want you dead because I want my inheritance more than I want you. And I think that's a theme that kind of runs through both the younger and the older son. And, and I think it's a theme that runs through the church. So many of you, you want what God will give to you more than you want God himself. And so he squanders it. He says, I want, I want my stuff. I want it now. And the father, in an unbelievable gesture of generosity, but also shame to himself, instead of punishing that son, which would have been totally appropriate which everyone in the audience listening to jesus story right now is they're riveted by this story you know what i'm saying i don't know if you've seen these mo movies nowadays in general suck amen i mean like back in the day when like in the 80s when there were quality movies like the breakfast club come on now you know what i'm saying like ferris bueller's day off i mean just quality movies and and, and nowadays these movies are all junk but but the good movie is the movie where you're like in five minutes into that movie you're just like hooked you know what i'm saying you know what i'm talking about 
some of you guys are like, what, what, what are you talking about? But like, like some of you guys watch Korean dramas. Yeah, yeah, you're all, oh, oh my goodness. Sweet Jesus. Did you see that? That was the most responsive thing I've ever had in a Korean church. And, and, and it's like the first five minutes, there's like already a tragedy. You're just like, oh, you know, you're already crying. You know what I'm saying? And some of you feel that a little too much. But this is the kind of story where Jesus tells this story and literally people are just riveted because they want to know what's going to happen to this younger son. What will happen to this younger son? Because he has just done the worst possible thing that a Jewish son could do. He has shamed his father in public. He takes the wealth. The father gives him generously all, the, all of his inheritance. And you have to understand too, the younger son, in, in Jewish culture, the younger son will get half of the inheritance that the older son will get. So if you like math like I do, that means that two-thirds of the inheritance will go to the older son and that the youngest son will get one-third of the inheritance. Okay? So he, he gets one-third of the inheritance. And again, scholars say that uh, for him to get that inheritance, what they had to do is because but the economic kind of the bank system of, of the first century was their land. So everything was tied to their land. And so for him, he had to sell a third of his land. And what they had to do is basically when he says that he, he took his wealth and he kind of went off into this distant country, he basically liquid. It was like a foreclosure. Like he just took everything that he had, all that land, and he sold it all out. This land that literally generations of this family had probably worked to expand this land. In an instant, this younger son squandered all. He just, he just sold it all off and he went off to basically party. So you can imagine this first century, especially the Pharisees, they're like, oh, shoot. Oh, snap, what's going to happen to him? And the sinners and the taxers, I think, they're, they're riveted because I think they're identifying with this guy. What's going to happen to him? Because whatever happens to this son is what's going to happen to us. Whatever happens to him is what would happen to us. And so the, the, the audience is riveted and the, the text continues as time element. Not long after that, the younger son got together. All he had set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. And again, if, it, you know, in, in terms of Jewish culture, you know, I mean, th- this, is not, this is not a good son. You, 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 you take the land that, that people have worked for generations for and this family had just, you know, um, blood, sweat and tears to get this land. You sell it all off. And then in, an, in a very short time, you squander all of that in reckless living. And then the Bible says this, after he had spent everything, which in um, English, that means broke. He was broke. There was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. And the the question that I ask, and and every, if you're teaching the Bible, if you're preaching the Bible, one of the the most important questions you have to constantly ask the text is why? Why does Jesus include this in the story? After he had spent everything, so he's already broke, then a severe famine hits the whole country. Now, if you're a wealthy person and a severe famine hits the whole country, you probably become poor. But if you're broke and a severe famine hits the country, what happens to you? You get broke-er, right? I mean, it's like you're already broke, and then now a severe famine hits. A severe famine hits the country. And then the Bible says a very interesting point. Jesus says he began to be in need. The reason why I say that, and I can't go into this because of time, but, but I think that what we have to understand in our theology is that sometimes when we're at the, we, we think we're at the bottom, but we don't turn back to Jesus, then Jesus will often uh, put a trial in our life that feels like he doesn't love us very much, but it is what uh, one author calls his severe mercies. 
And everyone who's walked with Jesus for a long amount of time knows what it feels like to be the recipient of severe mercy. It doesn't feel like mercy, but years later you look back and you realize that was a mercy. But it feels like God doesn't love you very much because he's inflicting you with a trial or or a, a discouragement or an opposition. You know what I'm talking about? And the reason why is because he knows, and he has good theology, God has good theology. He believes that the most satisfying uh, person that you can ever turn to, that the place where you'll be most joyful and to have the most peace and the most purpose is in himself. And so if you look anywhere else but Jesus, you will never fully be satisfied. Matter of fact, some of you will continue to try to prove this rule wrong and you will never be right. For the rest of our days as sinful people, we will try subconsciously and consciously to prove God wrong. No, 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 God, if I just get married, if I just have a family, if I just get this job, if I just get into this college, if I just have this, then I'll be happy. And Jesus is saying all all along the scripture, it's just me. So if he loves you, if he truly loves you, he's going to put things into your life so that you come back to him. Well, the guy was broke. He should have come back home, but he wasn't ready yet. And so he, be, he, he puts a severe famine into that country, and then he begins to be in need. I like that text. It says he began to be in need. It doesn't say he was in full-on need and returned back to the Father. He began. Because sometimes with some of us, including myself, we're really slow, aren't we? It, it's like a process of repentance. It's not this one magical moment where we're just like, we just, boom, God puts a trial. And yes, Lord, I repent. No, it's a lot of times it's like you're fighting and kicking and screaming like a little baby. And God is lovingly drawing you back to himself. I remember when I was in college, God changed my life in a very radical way. And when I was in high school, I had a lot of really close non-Christian friends. And so I remember I went down to the University of Illinois where a lot of my friends went. And there was this fraternity where um, it was basically the, the, the top fraternity at U, U of I. And uh, it was like all the athletes, a lot of the athletes were in this fraternity. All these like, you know, really, really like studly guys were there. And anyway, seven of my friends from high school were in this fraternity. And so they invited me to this party. Now, I had, I had radically changed my life to Jesus Christ. And so I went to this party. It was a huge party. I don't know what Greek system is like in Florida, but in, in, Illinois, in U of I, it's one of the biggest Greek systems in the, in the nation. And they had 2,000 or so people in this party. It was a house party. The, the frat had a house party. They fenced off the whole yard. They had a live band playing in the yard. They had like kegs of beer everywhere. People were getting drunk everywhere. And I was in the middle of the party with my Coke. So I'm drinking my Coke, talking to my friends. And this buddy of mine from my high school comes up to me. And he's already half drunk. And he whispers to me these words. He says, Dave, I wish I had what you have. And I, I thought I was drunk for a second. I was like, what? Because if you know this guy, this guy was literally like, he was that guy, like that all-American guy. He was like 6'2". He, was our, he, was our, he won the award in our high school for most athletic. He won the award, some of you older people appreciate this, he won the award most likely to appear on the game show Studs. Y'all remember this? It was this game show where these studs would come on and the, these girls would try to like get their attention and try to be the one that was chosen by these studs. I personally thought I should have won the award, but I lost. But anyway, it's a different story. Anyway, this guy won those two awards. He was six foot two. He was brilliant guy, athletic guy, had this gorgeous girlfriend. I mean, this guy literally had everything that the world says should make you happy. And in the middle of a party, as he's getting drunk, he whispers to me, I wish I had what you have. Now, I mean, I was pretty ripped, so he could have been talking about my muscles. No, I'm just kidding. But that was not an option. So, so I'm pretty sure he was talking about my faith in Jesus Christ. 
What was interesting about this guy was he was not a Christian, but on his senior yearbook, we all had a quote under our picture. And the quote that he chose as a non-Christian was from the Bible. And the quote was, For what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his own soul? For what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his own soul? And he began at that moment to be in need. And to this day, I've never heard that he came to know Jesus. But he began to be in need. He began to realize that the things of this world could not satisfy. And yet for some reason, in all these years afterwards, he wasn't able to lay all those things down and come all the way to Jesus. How about you? How many of you has God just been graciously, graciously just speaking to and you wouldn't listen. And then he put a trial into your life. He put something difficult into your life. And you, instead of coming back to Jesus, you began to just, you know, rebel against him even harder and began to just say, Lord, I, I don't want you. I don't, I don't think you're a good God. And all the while, he's lovingly trying to draw you all the way back to himself because he loves you so much that he's willing to, 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 to receive from you all your anger and all your your hatred and all your um, bitterness because he just knows that until you come to him, you'll never fully be satisfied in this world. What a loving God. What a loving God. And I believe that God has put some severe mercies in your own life recently. And God is calling you all the way back to himself, just like he was to this son. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. I like this. So he begins to be in need. And, the, and I think as we read this, we hear hope. We're like, oh my gosh, he might come back home. But instead of coming back home right away, as he feels this emptiness and this longing, and this loneliness that so many of us feel all the time, instead of coming back to Jesus, what we do is we try to create our own solution. So this guy begins to be in need. He's broke, so he's got some economic issues. And he's also just really lonely and struggling. And he begins to feel this emptiness and this need in his soul. And so what is his solution? It's, it's, an, it's an unbelievable solution for a first century Jewish person. His solution is this. Hey, I know what I'll do. I'll get a job. What kind of job will I get? I'll feed pigs. Like that's got to be when, when the first century Pharisees heard this story, they must have been absolutely appalled by this guy by this point. I mean, they wanted to hurl. Are you serious? You already shamed your father. That's like the worst thing a Jewish kid could do, especially the younger son. Then you took all of his land, the third of his land, and squandered it all in reckless, immoral living. Can you imagine the shame that that's brought every time that father's walking through the town village and everybody's snickering at him behind his back? Because y'all know Jewish people, they're like Asian people. They're nice to you in your face, but behind your back, they ain't so nice. You know what I'm saying? And, and he's, everywhere he goes, the father is shamed. He did nothing wrong. It was all because of the disobedience of this son. I mean, this is like the worst Jewish son of all time. And after all this, you don't think it can get worse. And he literally goes and hires himself out to a citizen of another country, a Gentile. And the job is to feed the very animal that Jewish people think are absolutely unclean. Can't get worse than that. I mean, Jesus is a masterpiece painter. He's painting a story. He's painting a picture of the ultimate Jewish loser. And it can't get worse than that, right? And I think about 
the way that some of my friends think too. It's the exact same situation. So many of my friends, you know, I remember in high school, again, my friends partied it up 2 a.m., 3 a.m. They'd be sobering up from their, you know, being drunk. And, and, and I was the guy who didn't get drunk. So I, they would talk to me and, and people, when they get drunk, they just open up about crazy things. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. Anyway, so they start talking to me. And I remember stories when times like this one brother with, he's this basketball star and, you know, this cool guy, he, he was just opening up to me just about how empty and how lonely and how discouraged and how much he wanted something to just be substantial and meaningful. And this guy's opening up to me about this. And, and my other friends who, who went to U of I and they would be like, yeah, we get drunk on Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday. I mean, getting drunk all the time. And they talk about how repetitive and how meaningless. These are non-Christians coming to me and telling me this is empty. So what's their solution? Hey, let's drink more. Let's get into some drugs. Let's sleep around some more. Hey, hey, if, if this doesn't satisfy me, I know what I need. I need more of that same thing that never satisfies my soul. And so before you judge this guy, what about you? What do you do when the emptiness comes and the loneliness comes and the guilt comes and the shame comes? What do you do? How many times have you felt that pain in your soul and all you did was click on Facebook for four hours or surf the Internet? And waste your time on video games all day because you just wanted to numb that pain. And you actually think, hey, if I play video games, that will satisfy that longing of my heart. That God has created you for himself. And you think that the internet will fill that emptiness. It never will. It never will. So we think we have the ultimate Jewish loser, but Jesus goes one step further. Maybe he has like this dramatic pause. He made himself, he hired himself out to sit in the country to, to feed his pigs. And then the Bible says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. Love that. I thought the ultimate Jewish loser was a guy who, who totally dishonored his father, shamed his father, squandered his father's wealth and wild living, then started to feed pigs for a Gentile boss. I mean, it can't get worse than that, but it just got worse. Now he's jealous of the pig. I mean, that's like jacked up. You know what I'm saying? Like he's looking at Babe and he's just like, oh my goodness. Because y'all remember, if you guys are old, you guys remember Charlotte's Web? Y'all remember that? When I was a kid, that was like the bomb book. You know what I'm saying? And, and we read Charlotte's Web and we, we learned what pigs eat. You remember? Slop. What the heck is that? Slop is that stuff when you go to the youth group retreats and these dudes who have nothing else to do, look at all the leftovers and they say, hey, let's put that all together. And hey, let's add some Tabasco and some Sriracha sauce and some soy sauce. And you put it all together and you say, hey, 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 a dollar if you eat that. And some dude's like, okay, a dollar. Oh, that's slop. All right. That's the stuff that nobody wants to eat. They, you got to pay me to eat that. And this homie was looking at this babe pig and was like, oh, my goodness, that looks so good. That's the ultimate Jewish loser. When you're jealous of babe or Charlotte's wet, whatever, you are, you are the ultimate Jewish loser. That's like a, like a Korean looking at a bowl of kimchi and saying, you have it so good. All right. It's the ultimate Jewish loser. This is the guy who everyone in that first century audience is listening to this story and they're thinking to themselves, this guy deserves to die. This guy deserves to be beaten and punished like no other son. This son has brought so much shame to his family that he deserves nothing but absolute punishment and exile. And then the story begins to turn. 
When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. That, that text, when he came to his senses, can mean um, basically when he reasoned it out. And, and just again, really quickly, I, I think this is important, especially um, in the Korean church, because a lot of times, I, I don't know what it's like in Florida. I don't think it's, it's the same as it is in Chicago. But in Chicago, when I was growing up in the Korean church in Chicago, uh, Koreans equate repentance with emotions, now, I'm not saying that emotions are not there in repentance, but emotions does not mean that you repent. Emotions alone, the fact that you, like Koreans in Chicago, when we repented, man, we repented like legit. Y'all know what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, I remember as a kid, because I, I never was very Korean in my culture. Like, I, I didn't really have any Korean friends, but I, I had to go to this Korean church once in a while, and I never liked it. But I would go to these retreats, and literally, every night, the last night I retreat, I mean, they would turn the lights off like pitch dark. Okay, it's like a fire hazard right there. Then they would turn this music. The band would play so loud, you'd be already scared. And as soon as the lights went off, and as soon as the preacher would start yelling at you, you need to repent. And it was crazy. Like gangster Korean thug-looking guys would start crying like little babies on the spot. It was unbelievable. Koreans are weird. Like we would cry like on the spot and I would like try to cry, but I just couldn't. So I felt like I was not spiritual. Like everyone was crying on the spot and they were crying loud. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like they had just watched Korean drama for five minutes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they were just like, ah, ah. you know, I went to some Korean conferences. And I heard this one dude, over 2000 Koreans who were all loud. This dude was so loud. You could hear him over 2000 crying people. And he was like, chew y'all. <laughs> If you're not Korean, I don't even know what that means. But it means something like Jesus or something. Anyway, it's like, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. They must think that God is deaf. (laughs) And I think the Koreans in Chicago had this false understanding of repentance. They thought the louder they cried and the louder they screamed and the worse they felt, more genuine the repentance. But, you know, Judas felt really bad and he committed suicide and never repented. The Bible text here says that for those of you, especially those of you who are a little bit more cerebral, this is good news for you. If you've been to these retreats, you probably felt like me, like, what the heck? He just came to a census. Just thought about it. And some of you want this emotive experience, and maybe God will give that to you because God is a, such, such a gracious God, and God uses our emotions. But some of you just need to think with your head. This guy just thought with his head, wait a minute, okay, hold on. Um, um, I'm here, and I'm jealous of a pig. And I have no food and no money, and I smell like junk. And my, my father's hired men, I mean, they have food to spare. Which one's better, living off on my own, independent of my father, or going back home and living in the presence of my father? And, and what he decided was it is better to go back home. He used his mind And some of you need to think about your life. And how many years have you said, I'm not going to give everything to God. And how has your life gone? I mean, how great is your life apart from Jesus? I mean, I really think this is true about sin. The first few months or years, you go out and you party, you do all your things. It's, It's great, sure. But I'll tell you what, I mean, my friends who don't believe in Jesus, who don't have the kind of conscience that the Holy Spirit gives to them, when they're honest with me, I mean, not a single one of them has really said to me, Dave, my, I feel so much purpose and satisfaction in my life. 
And you, if you're in Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you and you go out and rebel and sin, man, it's not going to be a pleasant time. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, I've tried to quit on Jesus multiple times and the guy, the Holy Spirit's like annoying. You know what I'm talking about? Where like you try to go out into the world and God's just like won't let you. And you're like, just let me go. And he's like, no, you're like, come on. I know. Like, and some of you guys know what I'm talking about. It's not been a pleasant experience trying to rebel from God. God is saying to you very graciously, come back home. I'm such a gracious God. And I'll forgive you. And I'll restore you. And I'll cleanse you. And I'll provide for you all the things that you need in this life. So he starts to go back home to his father. And then the Bible says this, but while he was still a long way off, and this is what we call the climax of the story. Y'all know climax, right? Y'all still, y'all still know what climax is, right? That's that part in that story. You know, you got the, the setting and the plot development and the character development and then all the, all the conflicts like begin to kind of merge into this one moment. You know what I'm talking about? If it's a good story, well, all these different storylines just kind of come into one. Again, since the Korean drama is obviously so dear to many of your hearts, that's like at year 14 of the Korean drama. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like those Korean dramas are like forever, okay? And, and it's that point when there's been like 45 tragedies, okay? Because you think tragedy number 13 is the end of the story? No, it's like 34 more, right? And, and you're just like literally just waiting, waiting, all right? Or it's like, it's like that. It's like when, you, when, you, when I was a kid, like guys, like we like taking girls to horror movies for our first dates, you go to a horror movie. I don't know. Horror movies nowadays are like complicated. You know what I'm saying? Like they're like advanced. Like Sixth Sense, you're like, no way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But back in the day when we were growing up, you know, back in the 80s and 90s when, we, when us old people were growing up, some of you guys are like in the 70s and 60s, whatever. Back in the day, horror movies were very simple. They always had the same formula. It was like this white couple in the woods, all right? They're in the woods, and they, like, find each other in the woods, right? And they're like, oh, you're cute. Yeah, you're hot. Oh, let's kiss. Okay, so then they start making out, right? That's the point when you know something bad is going to happen. When the white man and the white woman are making out in the woods, something bad's about to happen. And then you hear that music. Oh, my gosh, it's over, right? So you're, like, in the woods, making out, and they hear this sound. They're in the woods. They hear this. I'm like, dude, Run. But they don't run, okay? They hear that weird sound. What's that sound? I don't know. Let's keep kissing. Okay. So, ah. And everyone in that movie theater, you know what I'm saying? Just straight on the edge of their seat because that's the climate. What's going to happen to white couple making out in the woods, all right? Guys love that because, you know, girls, they will start clinging to you. You know what I'm saying? They don't like you. They ain't attracted to you. But they scared and they just cling to you. And they're like, oh, my God. And you're like. Ladies, I want you to know something. When that guy looks like he's like all cool and stuff, inside he's peeing in his pants just like you. He's like, oh my gosh. But I'll say he's like, I'm good. But inside, like, ah! right? Anyway, so they're there and that's that climax. Or I don't know if you guys seen the movie Titanic. You remember the climax of that movie? You don't, do you? Because there was none. It's the worst movie ever. I mean, what the heck was the climax? No way. There's an iceberg. Oh, my gosh. Titanic might sink. Oh, no way. I, I got in a fight with my best friend, one of my best friends in seminary. We got in a fight because he thought that movie was epic. I, that's the worst movie ever. There was no climax. There was no point where I was surprised at all. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, that was, that was just triggering it off of my chest. 
So this is the climax because everyone in that first century audience, they're all listening to this story and they're like, oh my goodness, he's coming home while he was still a long way off. And then all of a sudden you see this portrait of the father that I want you to understand is, is the exact portrait I think that God has towards every one of you who is straying from home. While you are still a long way off, what does the Bible say? The Bible says his father saw him. You know what that says to me? That says to me that, that God is watching for his prodigals to come home. In this room alone, if you're honest, at least 95% of you, to some extent, I would even go so far as to say 100% of us, are prodigals today. And unless you can say to me, I love Jesus like 100% right now, you're a prodigal. And the grace of God is he never gets tired of watching for you. That's the grace of God. I don't know about you, but if somebody rejects me, there's a limit to how many times I feel like I can forgive that person. But Jesus, the father, is looking over the horizon for this son who has brought so much shame and pain and even economic pain on their family. And he's looking over the horizon for him so that when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And at that point, the Pharisees are like, oh, shoot, here it comes. Here it comes. The father saw him. But what does the Bible say next? And was filled with compassion. That, was, that would have thrown the whole thing off. I mean, there's not a single first century Jewish person in that audience who would have ever guessed that this father would be filled. In fact, the Greek word there, it, feels, it says it's like a overflowing with compassion. So I don't know if in Florida you guys, you guys go to Niagara Falls, but in the Midwest, even though we're like 11 hours away from Niagara Falls, every time a Korean relative comes, we always have to go to Niagara Falls, Right? <laughs> I mean, literally, I'm like, what do they want to do? They want to go to Niagara. Do they know that it's 12 hours away? And they literally drive 12 hours there, take like two hours of pictures, which is like 800 pictures, and then drive 12 hours back. And I remember as a little kid, how many guys have been to Niagara Falls? Okay, good, good. So a lot of you guys. And, and I remember as a little kid, I went out there. And you remember you get that blue poncho, the maid of the mist? Remember that? It's not a mist, by the way. It's a lot of water. And you get onto that boat and you get close to that, that Niagara Falls and you, you look at the force of that water. And that is not like a little fountain. That is just a, a massive amount of water just flowing over that waterfall. And when I picture this Greek text here, and he says he's overflowing, I picture the Niagara Falls of compassion. When you come home, the father just, Niagara Falls, come, just bam, just compassion just flowing. For, for a guy who deserves nothing but punishment. And all that's in the Father's heart is compassion. There is no one like our God. There is no one like our God. And the first century audience is just sitting there like, what? What is going on? This guy is messed up. Does he not remember what this son did to the family? And then the Bible says he was filled with compassion and then he ran to his son. He ran to his son. The scholars say first century men never ran, ever. But he ran. They wore robes and he had to put his robes up and expose his bare legs, which was bringing shame to himself. And the theme throughout this story is how the father would take shame upon himself so that his son would be honored. And that's the gospel, isn't it? 
And he picks up his, his robe and he starts to run. And I think at this point, the first century audience is like, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. At his initial response, because it's his son still, was compassion. But then when he came to his senses, he was like, oh, yeah, it's my son. I'm going to run to him. And I want you guys to, to, to feel this because imagine if you came home with your report card and, and it was all F's, like one F plus. And you, you come home and your dad gets that report card and he sees you walking up your driveway. You got all F's and one F plus. Your dad sees you, looks at the report card, looks at you and starts running at you. What do you think? Beautiful day, Appa. I mean, no one's thinking that. So that's why I want you guys to feel this, because I think the son is like, oh, my goodness. I have never seen an old man run in my culture ever. My dad is a far away away. I'm faster than him. If I turn around and run, he can't catch me. I mean, that's what I would think, honestly. Like, you would see, if I did that with my daddy, I mean, my daddy would beat me for a B plus. So, I mean, if my daddy, if I got all Fs and he was starting running at me, I'd be like, all right, I better run the other way because I don't want to get that baji bussy. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, so some of you guys remember that joke. All right, anyway. So, so, so then the question for me is, why doesn't he run away? Why doesn't he run away? And I think it's because he's finally hit the bottom. He literally has hit the very, very bottom. I mean, he was feeding pigs and he was envious of the pigs. All of his so-called friends, when he was throwing those parties with all of his wealth, they had all left him and abandoned him. He was lonely. He was poor. He had no purpose. I think he came home and he didn't run away because he had nowhere else to turn. And I also think this, I think it's because he probably thought to himself, you know, whatever my dad does to me, I deserve it. I want you guys to kind of feel that because I think that's the the greatest place and maybe the only place where the gospel really makes sense. See, the problem with a lot of you guys is not that you're really, really bad. Some of you have struggled with some deep sins in your life. The problem with a lot of you guys is You don't think you're that bad. You don't think you need a savior that much. You kind of think you need a little bit of behavior modification. But you don't know the full extent of this sin that is so prodigal. You don't recognize that this sin, I love that song, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I mean, that is my song. The more that I've walked with Jesus, the more that I've tried to follow him, the more this heart just longs to leave the loving presence of my God. It doesn't make sense. So sinful, so rebellious, this flesh just at war with the things of God. It is so sick. My heart is worse than cancer. There is no cure for this heart apart from the absolute, complete and finished death the Holy One, the Lamb of God, Jesus. And if you don't believe that, do you really understand the gospel? 
If you were just a little bad, then Jesus wouldn't have had to suffer so much on that cross. One pastor said, if you had seen Jesus on that cross, you would have vomited. It was so excruciatingly gory. The Lamb of God slain for us because of your heart that is so sinful. And you, like me, need to come before Jesus regularly and fall on your knees and say, Lord, apart from you, there is literally no Savior, not money, not family, not good works. There is no Savior apart from Jesus. And Lord, whatever you determine to do with my life, if you sent me to hell, it would be fair. But Lord, I come to you because I have nowhere else to go. That is the most beautiful place. And matter of fact, as you walk in the Christian life, and as you listen, I, even, I remember just talking to Chung the other day about his testimony. Man, it was when he, he hit rock bottom, wasn't it? You remember his testimony? You guys were here last night. He said that he, he, he had this repentance and he thought it was all good, but he hadn't fully hit. He began to be in need. And it took a long time after that for him to really hit rock bottom. And a lot of us, it's like that. And if you haven't hit rock bottom, it's because God is so kind to you. He's so patient. Don't test him. Come to Jesus today and say, Lord, persuade me that apart from you, there is no Savior. So this is my imagination based on the text. It's not from the text, so don't quote me on this. But this is what I imagine. I imagine him falling to his knees as he sees his father running to him. And he's saying, all right, here it goes. And I imagine the father just running to his son and he's closing his eyes. And then all of a sudden he hears with his ears the pitter patter of his father just from a distance. It's getting closer and closer and he starts to get ready. And y'all remember in the youth retreat, I talked about this. Man, this reminds me of when I was a kid growing up. And my daddy, he was like no joke, you know what I'm saying? How many of you guys got spanked by your dads? Raise your hands. It's a healing time. Come on now. Come on now. Keep it up high. Some of you guys are scared. You're like, is my daddy here right now? Is my daddy here? You're like, right here, right here. All right, raise your hand. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. It's a healing time. Keep it up. Just, I want to sing a song of healing over you right now. You are not alone. Come on now. I remember as a kid, I mean, like, like the, our generation, like, like if you're like, in their late 20s, early 30s, you know, 40s. Like, I mean, our dads, when they came here, man, they came from a Korea that, that literally, like, corporal physical punishment was like, it was like, it was natural. For them, it was like a beautiful thing. It was weird, you know? And, and, and I remember as a kid, I mean, my daddy, he had, like, different levels of punishment. Y'all remember this? Like, level one was, like, kuro anja. That means, like, kneel down. That was my favorite level. I was like, thank you, Jesus. Like, kneel down. Three days? Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Just don't do level two or three. Level two was memaja. You remember that level? Memaja, for those of you who don't speak Korean like I don't, it man means stick, and maja means whoop. All right? So, it's like, it's like whoop you with a stick. And so... So that one hurt because, you know, every Korean dad was in the military. Like, my daddy was, like, scary. I mean, he was 5'7", 130. Like, all of us were, like, 6'6", six, 6'2". Six, like, we're huge guys. But my daddy, like, I remember one time my brother, he was benching 315 in college. He came home. My dad, my brother, 6'2". He challenged my dad to an arm wrestling match. My dad, 5'7", 135. I was like, I'm putting my money on my brother. My daddy was barely paying attention. He was just like, bam. And I was like, oh, my gosh. That's why men macho hurt so much. You know what I'm saying? But y'all don't even play because level two was okay, but level three was an 
I mean, if y'all got level three, okay, we're going to have a time of healing prayer afterwards, all right? Level three was called Baji Busa. You remember that? Baji Busa was take off your pants and then go back to level two and Namaja, all right? I mean, Baji Busa. How many of you guys got Baji Busa? Raise your hand. Please, please let there be another brother. Am I the only one? Raise your hand if you got Baji Busa. Come on now. Is it just us? Is it just us? Now, what you'll notice later on after church, check out their booties. They're all big because we got swollen up by Baji Busa. I mean, I'm telling you, man, like, like, I would be like old. I mean, my daddy, my daddy told me a story. He's like, oh, you know, I know a story. A Korean newspaper, a man was 70 years old. His son was 45. He still spanked his son. I was like, oh, my God. Right? So I was like in high school sometimes. And my daddy, I was just like, I would do something wrong. Like I got like a 94 on my test or something. And he would be like, Inoma, baji busa. And I'd be like, before he even hit me, I'd be like, ah, ah. You know what I'm saying? Like I would just be crying. He hit me yet. You know what I mean? And like literally, I, I'd be like, with just my pants, you know what I'm saying? Like my, my underwear. And he would just, I would just be like, you know what I'm talking about? When your daddy about to whoop you. But he hadn't whooped you yet. That's the worst part. Once he whoops you, you're like, okay, that hurts a lot, all right? But, but that before he whooped you part, that's the worst. <laughs> the reason I bring that up is because I want you to feel that with this guy, all right? This guy is about to think, he, he's a, he thinks he's going about to get Baji Busa, all right? <laughs> so this guy's waiting. Maybe he already took off his pants. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. But he's just waiting there. And he hears the footsteps. And he is waiting to just get, bam! And he's just, And all of a sudden, the text says this. The text says the most shocking thing. The Bible says the father threw his arms upon him. And that must have stunned the crowd. The Bible says in the original language, it it says he threw himself upon his neck. I love that. I love that. I love that because when I was in high school, there were two kinds of hugs. There was the guy hug, and there was the girl hug. And they were absolutely different. And if you were a guy, and you didn't know the difference, you were in trouble. A dude would not see his friend, like, in a year, best friend. When he sees him, Daniel, come here. I have not practiced this with Daniel. We'll see if he knows. A dude hug is like this. Sup, son? Yeah, yeah. All right? No lingering, all right? None of this, none of this, none of this. What's up, son? How are you? None of that, all right? Just, just what's up, okay? Now, now, you haven't seen your friend in like a year or two, okay? You went to the, the war in Iraq. You haven't seen him. That's how you hug him. What's up? That's a guy hug in high school. Girl hug is totally different. Girl hug in high school. I know I did in Florida, but in Chicago, girl hug in high school, it's completely different. Girl hug in high school is dangerous. Girl hug in high school, they haven't seen their friends in like three class periods. It's like fifth period. You're in the middle of that hug without even knowing it because a girl hug doesn't start when they're together. A girl hug starts in the distance. Girls see each other down the hallway. They're like 100 feet apart. They haven't seen each other in three class periods. They're like, oh my gosh. They then extend their arms like thus. Then they start to hop towards each other while screaming simultaneously. You in the middle. You better run. Oh my gosh. And they start hopping toward each other. And when they finally get together, what do they do? I mean, they, they throw themselves on each other's necks and they start to hop simultaneously together. 
That's, I'm not saying that Jesus hugged screaming like that, but I'm saying that Jesus' hug was more like a girl hug than a guy hug. He wasn't like, what's up? He like literally, I, this I imagine, he throws himself upon his neck, tackles his son, and starts rolling in the grass, just holding and kissing him. And that would have made the Pharisees just absolutely livid. Because you know what? When you really see grace, when you really see grace, okay, especially when that grace is for somebody else, guess what happens? You get angry at grace. Don't tell me you love grace. You love grace for yourself, but you don't love grace for other people. You don't love it when other people that, that, that haven't, haven't worked the way that you've worked and haven't done the things you do get something, a promotion over your job. When you know you're more qualified, you're not like, praise God for the grace for that person. We don't live like that. We want grace for ourselves, but for nobody else. And the Pharisees were angry. And here was a son who had done the worst kinds of things to his family. And he's receiving the most lavish, lavish grace from his father. This is the gospel. This is what the church is built upon. It's not built upon religion or morality. It's built upon the grace of Jesus Christ shown to us ultimately at the cross. And everything you do as a church should be built with this unbelievable vision of getting the story of his grace into as many people's hearts as possible. And so the Bible continues. The son says him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What's interesting is that I'm running out of time, so I won't, I'll, I'll, talk, talk, I'll talk about this more at the retreat. But what's interesting is there's one sentence that he leaves out. Remember, he was reciting his lines in verses 17 and on. But he says, he doesn't say, make me like one of your hired men. And we'll talk about that more this afternoon. But basically, he and the older son and so many of us, we think when we mess up really bad, we're going to help pay our way back. Most of us on a functional level, not on an intellectual level, I mean, intellectually, a lot of you guys believe this grace gospel, but on a functional level, we have this kind of slave master or employer-employee mentality with God. Well, I messed up this long, so hey, I'll do my quiet times and I'll go to church and I'll give more and then God will forgive me and he'll restore me. No, 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 it's Christ alone. You can't do anything. Some of us, it's not like, I think most of us have a decent enough theology where we're not like, okay, like Jesus, we're at, we're at a meal together and we're like, hey, Jesus, I'm going to pay the whole meal and the tip. No, no, we think, okay, Jesus, I know that you, you, you paid for most of it. You paid for the meal. So I'll let you pay for the meal, but at least let me give you the tip. Let me just give you some good works to make myself feel a little bit better about myself. And most of us is not like, hey, we think we're going to pay it all. We just think we're going to pay a little, but even that diminishes the glorious work of the cross. Jesus paid it all. In other words, when you feel the most guilty about your sins, when you as a husband or as a wife have gotten in a huge fight and you feel like the worst kind of a husband or father or the worst kind of a father and son, and you, and you, des- you feel like you deserve nothing but punishment, go, before you go to your son or your husband or your wife and say sorry, go to Jesus. And sit there before God and remember this gospel and receive the running of a father towards you and him throwing himself upon your neck and kissing you. And you can do nothing to help pay it back. And when you receive that forgiveness in your heart, then go to your son or your husband or your wife. You say, you know what? 
I got so angry at you because you hurt me so much. But I realize I've, I've hurt Jesus far greater. And he just forgave me for this. So by his grace, I forgive you. And the gospel could change communities, can change families, if you really, really get it into your heart. And then I'll close with this. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Imagine this. I mean, this is a crazy scene. The beginning of this movie, the son just totally shames the father and goes off and squashes his wallet. And you just see this guy just messing up, messing up, messing up. And all you expect when he comes home is, is, is punishment. In fact, there's, there's, there's um, Middle Eastern scholars have said that, that there's, there's a certain ritual. Um, I think it's called the kaza. I don't remember exactly the, 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 the name, but I think it's called kaza. And basically, they have this ritual where when a son does something like this, the whole town comes together. They break a pot on the ground and they say, uh, basically, hey, we have nothing to do with you. And you are, you are absolutely exiled from this town forever. That's what everybody expects in this culture. They expect him to be exiled from this community. But instead of being exiled, what does he receive? He receives the most lavish return as if he was the perfect son, not the worst son. That's the grace. Was he the perfect son? No. In actuality, he was the worst son. But he's treated as if He's the perfect son. That's the gospel. At that party, can you imagine that party? The Hebrew DJ is spinning. You know what I'm saying? Just boom, and, and everyone's eating. I mean, there's a calf hanging. That's like some legit meat. And they're all eating, right? And, and everyone's partying. And the father's talking to the son. And here is this son, showered up, washed up, robed in righteousness. I mean, that robe, by the way, just to let you guys know, that robe symbolized the inheritance. He got the robe and the ring and the new kicks right on his feet. That symbolized that his, his sonship was restored. He, he, was, he had never lost his sonship. As a matter of fact, if you go in the Old Testament, when, remember when Joseph had that, that multicolored coat and, and all the other brothers were like, I want to kill him? Remember that? Did you ever think about that in Sunday school? Like, that's kind of off. Now, can you imagine, like, you have a brother, and your dad gives you, like, a Kmart coat, and then he gives your brother, like, a Versace? I mean, you'd be mad at your brother, wouldn't you? You'd be jealous, but would you want to kill him? That's kind of weird. But when I was going to Sunday school, they're like, oh, he had a better coat, so they want to kill him. I'm like, uh, that's weird, all right? No, but if that robe symbolized the inheritance... That should have gone to the oldest son, but instead bypassed all those sons and went to Joseph. Now you understand why they wanted to kill him. Because that coat was saying Jacob was favoring him over all the other sons who were older than him. They were mad. Here's this son with this new robe. If you'd walked into that party and you saw that son and didn't know the story, but you would have known the story. But if you hadn't known the story, you'd have looked at him and you'd have thought, this guy has never done anything wrong. He looks as if he never left home. He looks as if he never squandered the wealth and wild living. He looks like he never hired himself out the citizen of another country. He looks like he never fed pigs and was jealous. He looks like he's as righteous as a perfect son. That's the gospel. When you stand before God on that final day, you will be trembling in his holiness. I mean, trembling. And you will remember all of the ways that you were reckless in your immoral living and in your self-righteousness. 
You will remember all the times you judged people and gossiped about people and critical of people. All the times you didn't love Jesus. All the times you disobeyed him. All the times you weren't generous with your money. All those times that you lied and were deceitful. You'll remember all of that and you will feel absolutely condemned before a holy God. But you have forgotten that you were dressed in the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he will treat you like you were the perfect son. And he will look into you and say, what are you talking about? Enter into eternity and be with me in perfect love and joy for the rest of your days by grace alone. Hallelujah. Let's pray. praying and what I want you to do is I want you to come home today I want you to imagine yourself as that prodigal son how have you strayed from your father you know some of you have strayed by immoral living but some of you have strayed by religion in the end of the day the question is are you intimate with Jesus Are you intimate with Jesus today? And if you're not, I want you to come home today. I want you to come home and receive the overflowing compassion of your Father. I want you to receive and imagine. Imagine you come home and you're stained by sin and and the Father runs to you and throws Himself upon your neck and kisses you. And you feel so undeserving. In other words, before we come to the communion table, I want you to receive the lavish grace of Jesus. And then I want you to stand and see yourself in a robe of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers all of your past, all of your mistakes. I want you to run, come home, and receive the grace of Jesus today. And then, in a few moments, Pastor D.L. will invite you to the communion table. And as you come to that communion table, I don't want you to imagine yourself just coming, but I want you to imagine Jesus running to you in that cup and in that bread. I want him to, you to imagine him running to you, that he died on that cross to purchase for you your restored inheritance. Someone had to pay for that inheritance. Jesus was the one. Let's just come and receive his grace.